Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, emotion regulation, anxiety. I'm in my trauma series. Last week, I talked about trauma and what happens in the brain. So just a quick recap, you should listen to it just in case, but just to recap simply, the traumatic memories that we have from a situation, they don't get integrated and they can stay trapped in the amygdala and they continue to to trigger those scary thoughts and those big emotions. And I'm talking really strong emotions, not something that we can simply talk back to, right? We can't just do cognitive therapy and think happy thoughts. It's uber not helpful, right? Just because those, those, everything's not integrated. The 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 brain's not communicating with each other. The memories aren't integrated. And I've talked about how wonky the associations in our brain can be. Like if a certain song was on the radio, right. And you have a really bad car accident, that song had nothing to do with the accident. It didn't cause the accident, but our brain might just create that association, right? Our brain is going to associate any stimuli in our environment, smells, sights, anything that we hear, right? So now that song could trigger panic, right? And and it's so completely irrational. And people are like, I don't know why every time this tragically hip song comes on that I'm having a panic attack, right? And so it's just the brain making those associations, which makes sense because, you know, if you went to this watering pond and you all of a sudden there was a predator that came out as you're at this watering pond, that's danger, right? So you want to pick up all the sights and sounds and everything that you can to remember this is a dangerous watering hole because there's predators here. There could be potential predators here, right? And so then our amygdala just becomes that sensitive uh, trigger, right? Just like um, the sensitive smoke detector that's going to trigger the burnt toast all the time. It's not knowing it's a real fire versus just burnt toast, right? And so now that amygdala, it hijacks our emotions in our brain. It takes the calming, self-regulating part of our brain offline, very similar to anxiety, but with anxiety, we can remember the memories in sequence, right? Um, But with trauma, it's not the same. So we need to learn and teach the amygdala to stop being so darn trigger happy, which I've always talked about, even with anxiety. That's true, right? We're going to take back some control. We're going to put the brake on, on, on the amygdala so that we can regulate when we need to, because trauma disrupts the connections in the brain. We actually have to rewire the brain to be more integrated and connected. So last time I was talking about how the different parts of the brain aren't talking to each other and the left and right brain aren't talking to, to each other. So I think that that's um, important for us to remember. So I'm going to start talking about what to do and some of the foundational things that we need to remember to um, set up. Um And like I said, we'll see how deep I get into some of the strategies today, but I am developing a trauma-informed module for my uh, anxiety compass, where I will deep dive into a lot of these specific strategies. The first thing we want to do is making sure that we stop any trauma that could be happening, right? If there is any ongoing trauma from happening, it's so key. There's no point working on it. If we're just going to be throwing a kiddo or a person back into a traumatic situation, over and over and over again, right? Sometimes that's not possible, you know, like for first responder 
first responders, for example, or if there's a child who's in an abusive relationship or an adult who's in an abusive relationship for whatever reason. I mean, ideally with the, with the kiddos, we're getting them out of that situation, but uh, sometimes it's just not possible. So we're really going to need to work on different aspects of of trauma. There's going to be a lot more education, a lot more identity work, a lot of hope work, right. And, and just working primarily on let, we got to change this environment somehow. So we're always looking at stopping trauma and the environment from there, we're looking at the relationship, right? So if we're doing any therapeutic work, or if you are a parent or a teacher or whatever your role is with this child, who's had trauma in their life, we have to make sure we've got a strong trusting relationship. That's absolutely critical. There's nothing else that we can do if we don't already have that established, right? A lot of traumas, I said this last week, a lot of traumas are interpersonal traumas, right? Things are happening in important relationships in our life, right? And so trauma, it mostly affects our right brain. That's the emotional side of our brain, and it can impair our ability to form social connections. And so we need to work really hard to nurture that safe relationship. They got to feel safe because otherwise we won't be able to do the work that we need to do. So our social engagement system needs to connect. And on that, actually, this is an important point that I just was talking about. Um, I've been doing a lot of workshops. And so I'm just being reminded of some of the points that come up. Oftentimes, you know, at school, for example, or even at home, we'll, we'll create a safe space for kiddos, right? So whenever they're feeling like they need a break, they can go to this safe space. We got to be careful with our labels though, because what does that mean about the rest of the space? Does that mean the rest of the school and the rest of the classroom is not safe or the rest of the house is not safe? We really need to be careful, right? We need to make sure they feel safe in whatever environment they are in. I just wanted to really stress that because it's been coming up a lot. Now, the relationship in and of itself can be therapeutic. So we can't forget about that. Being able to engage in our work together safely, that's a form of integration and it's going to help us reduce dissociation, right? So just talking about something hard and being able to stay present, you know, aware and safe within a relationship is already going to be rewiring the brain. That's so helpful. And when we look at the relationship, it's not about just being kind and nice, right? Interpersonal trauma can create a lot of triggers for them. And I think I mentioned this at the last episode, right? That even just a smile can, can trigger them because they often become very suspicious of people, especially nice people, because oftentimes the perpetrator We're being uber nice and friendly before they did something terrible, right? And so our niceness can be a trigger. So it's not about being nice. It's about making sure our nervous systems are feeling safe. I am feeling safe in my body. That's what we need to do, right? And even more importantly, safe in this room, safe with this other person, safe, whatever the circumstances are so that we're not being re-triggered. Okay. So it's not just about being nice. I would say that be careful with that because that could take you down a really bad rabbit hole. The other thing that we got to think about too, is we need to go far beyond talking with trauma. And I talked about that last time because it's the right brain that needs to be tapped, not the left talking brain, right? Which is usually shut off when we have a traumatic situation. And so we, we, we need to make sure we're working on that right brain. We can't expect clients to go into their body and remain in the left brain 
right? Rationalizing thing. We're going to be going beyond words and we're going to be listening. We're going to be feeling physically. This is where attachment is. It's all in our nonverbals. And that's where our relationship is. And that's where safety is and all of those nonverbals. We have to make sure that we're going to be normalizing everything as well, right? That's the first part of my anxiety compass that need to understand with what's going on in the first place, realizing what's happening, what's happening in my brain, what's happening in my body, what's happening in my behaviors, right? Of course, you're feeling this way. Of course, you're behaving that way. No wonder. This is what's happening in your brain. This is what's happening in your body. And of course, you're going to come out behaviorally because you're trying to protect yourself. So lots of education and awareness in those early stages. And with that awareness, there's the realization that I'm not crazy. My brain and my body are doing exactly what they should be doing. They are built to protect me. And that's what they're doing. Right. And from there, we can highlight their resilience to get to where they are now. How have you made it here with such a trigger, happy amygdala? Right. Of course, your brain is doing that. Of course, those feelings are coming up. Of course, you feel that way. That's so important. Right. And then we can look at some of the strengths, just sort of flipping. How have you managed this? Right. We really need to make sure we're focusing on that because if they feel like, okay, there is some resilience here. There is some strength here. Oh man, my brain and body, that makes sense. No wonder they're reacting this way. They can feel more hopeful and even more confident that they can do the work that they need to do. Otherwise, hopelessness is just going to keep them stuck. The belief that I can't do it, I can't cope with it is going to keep them stuck, right? So we want to make sure that we're building some of that. Now, if it's a kiddo, all of my work personally is with kids and teens, I always, always, always need to have some adults involved, parents, ideally, if they can, but some adults who is important in their life, who's with them a lot, right? Some caregiver, they, they have to learn how to respond effectively when that anxiety shows up and when a tra traumatic reaction shows up. And to be honest, they're likely going to need a lot of work themselves and a lot of support themselves because they're likely to be riddled with guilt themselves, right? I always joke about here's your baby, right? And five pounds of guilt compounded annually for the, or daily for the rest of your life. So they need to know too, because oftentimes a lot of caregivers are thinking about what have I done? What could have I done differently? How could we avoided this? It's my fault, right? So we got to make sure that they are doing their work and, and getting over their emotional heartstrings too, because we know that that can just make things worse and they need to know how trauma affects their kiddos and how it shows up and how to support them and how to respond effectively. Now, one of the biggest barriers to any of the work that I've ever done is when parents misconceptualize trauma and treat their children like these fragile little shells, right? And, and they're worried that they can be broken just by blowing on them. That's a problem. And so by treating their kids as fragile, again, we're sending that message that you can't handle it. You need me. You're fragile, which anxiety and trauma is already making them believe. So it's just making that trauma bigger and it's making it way harder to treat. And it's so unfortunate, right? Because it's just going to make that so much harder for us to overcome. You know, and, and yeah, trauma is pretty common. It's sad to say it, but it is really common. But the important thing for us to know is that it's super treatable. We just can't bubble wrap them. Bubble wrapping them is just going to make it harder. 
So we just got to think about that. Now, information processing, we have to make sure we're looking at three different levels, levels as we get into this work, right? We really need a very comprehensive sort of holistic approach. So when we're working with information processing at the three levels, it's the thoughts, the emotions, and the body. Okay, we, we have to do all three because the traumatized brain, like I said, it's not integrated. It's got these disrupted connections between our nervous systems, between the emotional brain and with the thinking brain, right? And so people might become so easily overwhelmed with emotions and they're detaching and they feel like they're out of the body. So now they're feeling detached from their body. There's lots of ways that dissociation can manifest. So we need to reintegrate all three. So we're working with the thoughts. that usually form after the trauma, how to regulate our emotions that are related to the trauma. And then of course the body, because that's where we feel the trauma. The body is so important. Um, Not only with those three pieces, but the body is really important too, to integrate the left and the right brain, because it's through the body. We can start to become aware of things that we're not typically aware of. Like, are we holding our body tensely? Just notice that right now. Are you aware? Where is the tension, the strongest in your body? Where do you feel relaxation, the strongest in your body? So getting things moving is really important. Okay. That's, that's a really important piece. Um, I've talked about in the last episode, the different brain networks, right. And they're going to be important to target as well. So when we're looking at this, that's, you know, a really important area that we're going to be looking at. So if you have someone so full of self-blame and so full of self-criticism all the time, which often happens because they think I should have done something differently, but how could have they, when you're in a traumatic situation and you dissociate, how could have they done anything different? They couldn't have, they couldn't have, even if they tried, right. Their body and brain were doing exactly what they thought was needed in that moment to protect them. Right. And so if they're full of self-blame and self-criticism all the time, then the default mode needs to be targeted unless they're, you know, so entrenched in the story that they have about themselves. But they're if they're full of yeah, buts, yeah, buts, and they're defending that story at all costs, we might want to start with the salience network right? To help build the skill of differentiation. And that's a huge skill that all our kids need to have anyways with anxiety because they believe everything is dangerous. The world is dangerous. People are dangerous. So that's where the yeah, buts. I can't do anything because everything is too dangerous. You don't understand. So we got to go back to the relationship, right? And so now we got to work on differentiating because they believe everything is death. Every corner has death behind it. And that becomes completely debilitating and really depressing, right? And so they get caught in this vicious cycle. It's like they get held hostage, right? To all of these threat cues that they perceive that's happening all around them. So I think that that's really important to sort of think about, right? When we're we're looking at which part of the brain we need to work on first. Now, We know that the freezing part of trauma is what's really problematic, right? Because that's where things don't get integrated because there's no awareness, right? And so they're getting stuckness in the past. So they're frozen in the past. It's really disconnected from what's going on in the present. And so um, last time, I think I gave the analogy of the, the filing cabinet. I love that analogy, right? Where we should have all our files in the past, just one for right now in the present at any given moment and none in the future. But 
all of them are just filled because they're just frozen in the past. So the past becomes the future and the present. So when we look at things like EMDR, for example, right, they're staying present, focusing on moving their eyes as they go back to the traumatic experience. And so we get clients moving through the trauma and everything that that brings up in the moment, but with present awareness. Um, there's sensory, sensory motor approaches. That's a critical piece here to shift our bodies out of the frozen state and into a sort of a defensive action. Um, Dr. Levine talks about how animals who get scared. I mean, he talks about how humans are the only ones who have PTSD. For example, we're the only ones who get traumatized because mammals have a way to work through their traumatic response, right? So if they're scared and they fall into a frozen state, they're going to continue to carry out their defensive actions, like running away, for example, even so, you know, um, if you see videos of, you know, animals who are running away from humans and they get shot with a tranquilizer and they're frozen as they start coming back, right. You can see them running away still, even though they're laying down just to get back to that state of calm they're working through. Right. And, and actually Dr. Levine talks about a polar bear who's terrified because he is being chased by an airplane and then shot with drugs to be put to sleep. And when it starts to wake up, it first goes through the actions of running, right? Just like dogs, when they're dreaming sort of thing, they're running in their sleep and you can see their paws going, they're finishing that defensive action. They're running away and, and they can return back to equilibrium, which we don't often do in a traumatic response. We don't get to carry out that full defensive action. We get frozen. Something bad happens. Now, the point that I really wanted to get to and everything that I've always talked about in all of our work with anxiety is we need to wake up that amygdala and the same is true with trauma, right? And so we're talking about exposure here. We need to trigger dysregulation so we can work through everything that comes up that's as it's happening. So we can help that brain to reintegrate, right? And so maybe it's remembering the trauma and as they're remembering, we're bringing attention to the body. We're staying in present awareness. If they start dissociating again, we got to stop, right? And that's why the, the environment is important. The relationship is important. I have to feel safe. Our kiddos have to feel safe to be able to do this work so that they can drop into the body. Ideally, we want the same panicky feelings that they had in that traumatic situation, the closer they are to that situation, we can work through it way easier. Right. And we're working through it as it's happening in the body. We drop into our body. We're keeping our prefrontal cortex online, our awareness online. We're not dissociating. We are mindful and aware. So we're not blindly getting sucked back up into old patterns of reacting right? We got to maintain that awareness. And when we can maintain that awareness, we can make sure that brain integrates again versus disassociating. Okay. We want to make sure there's another person there with us. We're not alone. We are interacting. We are relating, right? And I'm still maintaining that safety. So even with another person there, because remember a lot of trauma is interpersonal. And so I don't feel safe with anyone. So we need to create that safety and work through this process, maintaining our awareness with another person. And when we can keep our prefrontal cortex online, we can start thinking rationally. We can start figuring out what's a real threat and differentiating the real from perceived or past stuckness, right? And so with exposure, we're helping the brain to learn this situation is so boring. 
I don't need to keep ringing the alarm. It really is no big deal. And so they're learning to be safe. Okay. So the exposure piece is still important. Mindfulness is so important too, obviously, right? Because, you know, in in the context of trauma, I mean, it's quite fascinating, really. When we look at epigenetics, I won't get into the complexities of epigenetics, but basically it's about how genes are expressed in the brain. So our genes don't change over hundreds of thousands or even millions of years, but the environment is changing all the time. And so we sort of have this control panel. In my mind, it's kind of like the breakers, you know, of the house. We've got this control panel. So, um, some of our genes will turn on and some of our genes will turn off to help us adjust to whatever's happening in the environment. And trauma can affect those genomes and and it helps to prevent inflammation, right? That's why cortisol is let out to help with all of those things. But we see a lot of problems from diabetes to Alzheimer's. Mindfulness can correct some epigenetics that are happening, all of the negative effects of trauma. So when we are traumatized, you know, we, we see that, um, inflammatory diseases going up, but we can decrease the likely, the likelihood of those inflammatory diseases with mindfulness. And so that's a key part of any treatment. It's really about reducing our stress and overall arousal levels. And we got to be aware in the moment when we're rewiring the brain, right? So when we talk mindfulness, it's not about sitting and meditating. It's not about clearing our mind and trying to be calm. It's about being present, being present with whatever's coming up in our thoughts, our minds, our bodies, right? Our feelings We're present. And when we're present, that's where we're creating that integration through our brain and our body. So we're not dissociating. So I think that that's really important. And I mean, there's so many evidence-based practices. You you just got to find what's going to work for for you, right? Um, There's loving kindness meditations. There's saying mantras. There's just paying attention to anything that comes up in your environment, like your senses, anything that you notice. So there's a terrible buzzing. Hopefully it's not, I can't get rid of it. So we're just going to stick with and hope it's not too terrible. Um, so I was just talking about being aware of everything that comes up in our body and our environment. So there's lots of different ways we need to do that or can do that. So we want to make sure we, we're finding something that's right for the kiddos themselves. We definitely need to remember that we can't expect all of the kiddos to all of a sudden right away to sit in mindfulness. It can be far, far too difficult for them. So we got to be really flexible with what the client needs what the kiddo needs at any given point, you know, even yoga could be so traumatizing dropping into the body can be so hard. So we got to be very careful. And I find so many kiddos too, right. They're all, they, they're already feeling, especially my teenagers and young adults. They there's like, I already know exactly what's happening in the body and it's too hard. Right. But it's about raising their interoceptive awareness and mindfulness. Um, and so maybe I'm doing it in other ways. I'm picking a random body part, right? So I'm going to pick the left earlobe. Think about your left earlobe, right? Getting in touch with what their body as we're working on other things. And I always make sure too, we're going at a pace that they're comfortable with. So they're letting me know, no, we're going down a bath, bad path right here where I'm I'm not going to be able to stay aware and present. And so we're establishing that right away. That's part of the relationship piece. So I'm going to leave it there for today. I mean, there's so many different things to think about, um, but hopefully that gives you a couple of ideas when we are working Um, with kiddos who have experienced some trauma. There's lots to think about. Like I said, it's an overview. I deep dive into it in my trauma module, part of my anxiety compass, which will be coming out. Um, So stay tuned for that. And
And uh, I hope you have a lovely day. Go help those kiddos be bold and courageous. And I will see you next week. 